This is exactly right. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike. And this is This Podcast Will Kill You, crossover edition with the Biology of Superheroes podcast. This is actually part two of a crossover in which we're going to talk about zombies. Zombies. In the first episode, which was released on Halloween, we joined Shane Campbell-Staten and Arian Darby of the Biology of Superheroes podcast to talk all things zombies. You guys should definitely go check out that episode. You can find it at the Biology of Superheroes podcast on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts. And this week, we're so excited to be joined by Shane to take a deeper dive into the physiology, history, and evolutionary biology of zombies. Do you want to introduce yourself, Shane? Yeah, it's good to be here. I'm Shane Campbell Staten, and uh, I am an evolutionary biologist. Heck yes. Yeah. Dr. Campbell Staten. Please, please remember it. <laughs> <laughs> also, the host of your own amazing podcast. Tell us about it. Yeah, we do our thing. Uh, so, host of uh, the Biology of Superheroes podcast. Yeah, so we Woo-hoo. use a lot of uh, you know science fiction. And uh, talk use science fiction basically as a way to you know to talk about biology, evolution, physiology, so on and so forth. So merging the nerd multiverse over here. <laughs> <laughs> I love, love it. it. Yes, and definitely everyone check it out. It's an amazing podcast. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's oh, really stop. fun. <laughs> <laughs> We've been waiting to do this crossover since. Before we even started our podcast. Oh, yeah. It's been like on the books. <laughs> it has been a long time coming, hasn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So before we jump into that, we've got some important business to take care of. Yeah, we do. Our quarantining. <laughs> what are we drinking this week? This week we're drinking rum for your life. <laughs> <laughs> and it's called that because guess what it has in it? Rum and more rum. rum. It has so much and rum. More rum. <laughs> so we will post the entire recipe on all of our social media as mm-hmm. well as our placeborita for this episode. Absolutely. You can find us at TPWKY on Twitter and this podcast will kill you on Instagram and Facebook. Let's let's get we'll move on. Okay. So today we are talking about zombies and basically sort of the biological basis for whether zombification can happen mm-hmm. via tetrodotoxin. And then Shane is going to hit us with some expertise on the evolutionary history of tetrodotoxin. And I don't know anything about it yet, so I'm really excited because I think it's super cool. Same. I know it's going to be super cool, I should say. We'll, we'll see how cool it is when I'm done. <laughs> the coolest everyone's gonna want to become a marine biologist after this episode yeah i'm gonna take you through the cultural history of the zombie tracing the origins of the modern zombie back to its religious and spiritual roots and we're gonna have a blast because as we talked about this is one of our favorite topics Heck all yeah. of us yeah and first i want to ask you something have you either of you Secretly ever wanted to be in a zombie apocalypse? Um. (laughs) 
to maybe see how you'd react or whether you'd be the first to die. I feel like this is a conversation that I used to have like back in college. You know, it's like one of those like 2 a.m. conversations. You're like, man, what, what do, you, do you think you would be able to survive the zombie apocalypse? Yeah, man. Yeah, I'd totally get a machete and this and that. And I'd go up into the mountains and so on. And so, you know, meanwhile, you know, at that time I had like barely like slept outside, you know, but it's like super confident that I'd be able to survive the zombie apocalypse. Yeah. 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 I feel like it's it's human nature to sort of think about these end of days scenarios. And yeah. Yeah. I think it's safe to say that we've all watched or read our fair share of zombie movies, shows, books, comics, etc. Because we're nerds. Nerds. But I don't think zombies are necessarily nerdy, are they? Shane, you're the expert. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're, I'm going to put them up as, as nerdy. They're pretty nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, I like being a nerd anyway. <laughs> yeah. Ain't nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, I you got to own the nerd. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now that we are self-proclaimed zombie experts, <laughs> I want to ask you guys what you see as the as the unifying characteristics of zombies or zombies as they are presented today. Great question. Let's do a little list. I feel like they have to be they have to be after humans, so they've got to be like aggressive in some way. Oh, after. Okay. So not like post-human. Post-human. No, no, no. <laughs> They're coming after you for some reason. Okay. So driven by human flesh. Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. I, mean, I think there's a typical sort of mangled appearance one way or the other, right? Either, you know, if you're talking about the actual walking dead or if you're talking about the infected, yeah. you know, there are, you know, there's typically a you know, very like run down, like dirty clothes, bloody True. thing happening. They look like, unwell. Once you turn into a zombie, yeah, you you start to, you know, you you don't worry about taking a shower and <laughs> washing your clothes anymore. You're preoccupied by brains and general yeah. biting related activities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I do think the whole transmitted by bites thing, it's like it's become pretty classic. Right. I'm not opposed to it. I'll say that much. I'm not opposed to that idea. I mean, I haven't, I can't think of a, a modern zombie movie that doesn't have where a bite from a zombie turns you into a zombie yeah, I in can't some think way, of shape, or form. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. So, okay. So we have that they're mangled, dead, undead. They eat human flesh. That's that's the sole thing that they're driven by. Yeah. And they're infectious or yeah. being a zombie is infectious. For sure. So this, the zombie that we just, that we just described is this modern zombie, which was born in 1968 when Night of the Living Dead was released, which is kind of funny, actually, uh, considering that the word zombie is never used in the movie. Yeah, but the- that's so typical. And I feel like all zombie movies now do that because they did that. And it really bothers me. Like in Walking Dead, why can't they just call them zombies? What do they call them? The walkers, the blah, blah, blah. Walkers. Or uh, biters, biters, I think, is a good biters. one. Ugh. I think it, it depends on the group. Yeah. Like every sort of group that that runs around has their own name for it. Which is so unrealistic, bro. Everyone knows it's a freaking zombie. Well, so I think I think in <laughs> in later later movies in between that time, they were called zombies yeah. in a lot of them. It so just annoys me. Well, it was actually so George Romero only used the terms like ghouls or flesh eaters when he made this movie, and he didn't really encounter the term zombie until critics started using it when describing the film. So it was really only then when he was like, oh, "Oh, these are like, and he had taken clearly from zombie fictions. um, But I think it sort of, he put two and two together after the fact. So he didn't know he was making the zombie movie until after it was already made. Well, no, I don't think that's necessarily true. I just don't know if, if he would have called them zombies or a brand new creature. Oh, Cause he did definitely oh, take okay. from zombie fascinating films. Okay. So, okay. So if you haven't seen the movie, which Aaron and I just watched it yesterday for yesterday. research, <laughs> <laughs> the plot revolves around a group of people hiding out in a house somewhere in Pennsylvania as reanimated corpses due to a radiation accident swarm around the house. This movie effectively began an, or created an entire new subgenre of horror movie. Romero and his co-writer John Russo drew from a bunch of sources, as I mentioned, for inspiration, including a zombie called White Zombie, which I'll talk more about later, and I Am Legend, the book by Richard Matheson about a plague of vampires. 
but Night of the Living Dead was something really brand new in many ways. This was the first movie to depict zombies as flesh-eating, as outnumbering people, as not controlled by an outside force, as being contagious, and a government struggling to maintain control. This was a far cry from the early depictions of zombies in Hollywood movies. This movie and many zombie movies that followed used zombies as a metaphor for whatever was really threatening society or humanity, such as unchecked consumerism, the violence of Vietnam War, or the resistance against America, the threat of nuclear war, racial inequality, and so on. In modern zombie movies, zombies are used to expose the true nature of humanity. How are people going to react in a crisis? And it's not just using zombies as this apocalyptic backdrop. The zombies themselves are scary because they occupy this uncanny valley Mm. where the familiar appearance of your neighbors or friends or spouse or child suddenly becomes horrifying when they're trying to eat your brains all of a sudden. Yeah. Then you have to shoot them in the head. Yeah. I feel it's a pretty common trope, right? There's always that moment where... You know, there's a zombie horde and they're trying to get away. And then you see the face in the horde that's, you know, your best friend or, you know, the person who you used to love. And you're like, oh, but but Susie, how yeah. how could it be? And then Susie like chomps down on your jugular and then, yeah. and then you're done. Yeah. So and all of these characteristics of modern zombie movies have the end result of making you scared of zombies, not of becoming a zombie. So you're more scared of the zombies attacking you rather than of actually becoming one, I feel. Hmm. Interesting. So before Night of the Living Dead, though, the perception of zombies in Western culture was totally different. The modern zombie actually has its roots in Haiti. And to understand how the Haitian zombie was warped and misappropriated into what we know as a zombie today, we have to go back a bit to the history of Haiti itself. Also, I just want to say that I'm totally out of my depth here (laughs) and I'm probably going to miss some stuff but I'm going to do the best I can so if there are any corrections please send them our way send them our way Yeah. yeah okay at the beginning Christopher Columbus (laughs) great guy (laughs) yay (laughs) landed on the island of Hispaniola which Haiti is the western third of Hispaniola which with the eastern two-third being the Dominican Republic Uh, during his first transoceanic voyage in 1492. As you can imagine, he instantly claimed it for Spain, set up camps there, and introduced diseases that led to nearly the entire indigenous population of Taino and Arawak being wiped out. Check our smallpox episode three if you're interested in more. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And with many of the rest of the indigenous population being enslaved. Mm Mm-hmm. Over the next couple of centuries, French, English, and Dutch pirates set up bases on the remote western and northern coast of Hispaniola, which grew as a trading hub throughout the 1600s, while Spanish control lessened. In the early 1700s, the French had taken control of the western part, which would later become Haiti. They ramped up export and production, and by the mid-1700s, the small piece of land was responsible for producing 60% of the world's coffee. Whoa. Yeah. And more sugar than all the British Caribbean possessions, quote-unquote, combined. Whoa, wow. dude. Yeah. I didn't know any of that. Can you guess how it got to be so productive? Uh, slave labor? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unbelievable amounts of slave labor. Yeah. Slaves on these plantations were treated so terribly and forced to live under such horrific conditions that at least 17,000 slaves died each year. Whoa. And the death rate outpassed the birth rate 8% to 1%. Oh, my God. It's, yeah. Every year, the number of people enslaved and taken from Africa to work in the French colony increased with around 40,000 slaves brought over every year in the years leading up to the Haitian Revolution. On the eve of the revolution, 32,000 white colonists ruled over nearly 500,000 slaves, the majority of which were born in Africa, like three quarters. Whoa, dude. So they killed off everyone who lived there, Mm -hmm. and then they just kept shipping over more human beings that Mm -hmm. they just murdered. Mm -hmm. Well... 1791 comes around, and this marks the start of a 12-year revolution that would lead to the formation of an independent Haiti, which was huge. This was the second 
oldest independent nation in the Western Hemisphere. Whoa. Yeah. Tell me the year again. 1791 marks the beginning of that revolution. Awesome. Thank you. So I talked a little bit, actually, about the Haitian Revolution in our episode on yellow fever Ooh. and the possible but debated role that the that yellow fever played in destroying French troops when trying to quash the rebellion. But the, so the takeaway from all of this is that the free country of Haiti was largely composed of people who were born in Africa and had fought very hard for their freedom. In the decades leading up to the revolution, a religion had taken shape to unify everyone, which drew heavily from some religions in West Africa, including the Fon people living in the area we call Benin, the Yoruba people in Nigeria, and the Congo peoples in Angola and Basaire. And also, this religion incorporated elements of Catholicism and indigenous Taino beliefs and practices. Wow. Yeah. So it was really kind of this very interesting mix. And after the revolution, the U.S. and Europe effectively cut contact with Haiti. Mm -hmm. They were like, nope, you're on your own. And they prevented trade from happening. And they also didn't allow any Catholic priests to go to the country, which French, the French had set up as a um, Catholic colony. So as a result, Haitian culture is really strongly influenced by traditions and practices directly from different African cultures without the sustained colonial presence quashing these influences the way some other Caribbean uh, nations were. Wow. Yeah. So this religion, or more accurately spiritual experience, continued to develop and is known as, as voodoo to those outside of it. So if you are someone who practices voodoo, you don't call it voodoo. It's just your spiritual experience. It's serving the spirits. Mm. I'm not going to go into any real details of Vodou because there are many great resources for that, me not being one of them. <laughs> but I will say that Vodou <laughs> is this is this spiritual system focused on healing and spirituality. Zombies or zombification are not a part of Vodou as it is practiced. Mm. Rather, zombie making is considered a folk religious practice that derives from Vodou but isn't a part of it. Okay. So just wanted to make that clear. So what is a zombie then in Haitian culture? Great question. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Asked and answered. Asked and complimented. <laughs> I'm great at self-compliments. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Well, the word zombie probably came from the West African and Congo words nzabi, nzambi, which is God or spirit of a dead person, and zumbi, which means fetish. A zombie is created by a boko, which is basically a priest who practices sorcery. There are two types of zombies. One is a zombie astral, which is the soul of a deceased person that the boko can use to enhance his powers. And the other is the one that we are more familiar with, the zombie of flesh. Mm. This corporeal zombie is one who has either been raised from the dead or is made to appear dead and then awakened or reanimated by a boko. Ah. Uh. So this zombie of flesh has no will and is under complete control by the Bokor who uses the zombie to do his bidding, which often involves laboring in some way. Mm. And so the threat of Haitian zombification is different than this modern zombification as in the movies. The loss of autonomy, being forced to work against your will, loss of contact with family and loved ones. These are the consequences of becoming a Haitian zombie, which makes sense for a country with such a horrific history of slavery. Yeah. In contrast with the modern zombie, becoming a Haitian zombie is scarier than the zombie itself. So you're more scared of becoming a zombie than you are of the zombie. Right. That, so that does opposite. make sense. Yeah. I now understand how why you made that distinction earlier. Because I was like, I don't want to become a zombie because then you die. <laughs> yeah. But now it makes more sense. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> so how did the modern zombie evolve from this? Well, in characteristic Manifest Destiny form, the U.S. invaded and occupied <laughs> Haiti from 1915 to 1934. Classic. Uh -huh. During the occupation, a bunch of ethnographers and writers, uh, including Zora Neale Hurston, who wrote one of the first books on Vodou and Haitian culture, uh, came to Haiti and exported stories of zombies. Many were very sensationalized, which kind of gave rise to this like fear and otherness of voodoo in uh, U.S. culture and Western culture in general. One of these stories was by a man named William Seabrook, 
who wrote a sensationalist book called The Magic Island. In one chapter, Seabrook describes seeing a zombie master controlling a group of zombies to labor for free. This was turned into a movie called White Zombie, which has all kinds of racist and sexist under, I guess not really undertones, like <laughs> overtones. Overtones, yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, so yeah, in, in White Zombie, the zombies are catatonic and completely under control of the Bokor, and this was the prevailing image of zombies in Western culture until Romero changed the game with Night of the Living Dead. Interesting. Mm-hmm. We're still missing, though, a piece of the puzzle, which is the how of a zombie. So what is the medical basis for zombification? Yeah, bro. And I think it's also just at, in, in passing, we're thinking about why researchers, and I'm including us in this, feel the need to demystify some cultural or spiritual practices to reduce them to compounds or chemicals or, oh, well, this happens. This is how it can happen in reality, you know? And that's just something to kind of I wanted to just say to think about because it was kind of after reading Wade Davis's books, I was like, why are you what? Why? Why? Yeah, yeah no, it's a good question. <clears throat> OK, so that aside, um, in general, back to zombies, mm-hmm. there are two basic ideas as to how zombies are created. OK, give them to me. OK, one basically says this is Haitian zombies. One okay. basically says that zombies are created through spiritual belief and that often so-called zombies are cases of mental illness and deprivation. The other focuses more on the medical basis of zombification. Belonging to the second category is Wade Davis. As a grad student, Wade Davis went down to Haiti in the 1980s seeking to uncover the truth about zombification, in particular, whether it exists at all and whether there was a plant or animal-based compound that can actually cause a zombie-like state in people. In his journeys, he came across the story of a man whose name I will definitely mess up the pronunciation of, Clervius Narcis. Mm, I don't know. You tried. Who had emerged after years, 16 years actually, of allegedly being kept in a zombie-like state and forced to work. And he had been confirmed to have died and been buried. So this was like 1962, I think, is when he was buried. Okay. Um, and then only he, to emerge 16 years later. Wait, he died and was buried and 16 years later he came up? No, 16 years later he sort of re-emerged into... Society. Society. Got yes. it. Okay. He wasn't buried for 16 years. No, no, okay. no, no. Because I would call BS on yeah. that. Well. Anyway, so Davis sought to find out how this could have happened, and he was able to gain access to various, quote, zombie powders and to observe their preparation. The contents of these powders varied region by region, but he found that a few ingredients were always present. Among them, human remains, cane toad, the hyla tree frog, and various species of pufferfish. Pufferfish, you say? Mm -hmm. In examining each of these... He found one likely candidate for making someone appear dead, the pufferfish, which contains a compound known as tetrodotoxin. <laughs> Davis alleged that this toxin, when given to the intended zombie, could imitate death so that the person could be buried and then dug up and held under control by the use of other compounds, including the datura plant. Aaron, please. Tell us how tetrodotoxin works and whether it is the true zombie powder. I'd love to. I'm excited for this part. Because I avoided it, and I was like... Oh, great. Yeah. Then let me tell you about it. (laughs) Tetrodotoxin. (laughs) Okay, the thing is, as I started researching this, I was like, we already did this. We've already done this episode. It's called... Crossover with Crossover. Yes, so you didn't. You already knew the answer. Yes. If you haven't yet listened to our crossover episode with Matt Candace of In Defense of Plants, where we discuss monkshood, a.k.a. Wolfsbane then go listen to that. You'll probably like it. Because we're talking about something that has a very similar mechanism of action. Interesting. Yes. And by very similar, I mean 
the same. <laughs> <laughs> I did listen to that episode and oh! it was absolutely amazing. Thank oh, you. Thanks. Oh, I'm blushing. <laughs> 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 okay, yes. I cannot wait for the evolutionary history, and I'm excited for the medical part That's, too. Okay, I'm okay. going to speed through this because no, no, I can't know. wait for the evolutionary history. <laughs> That's what I want to hear. Listen, okay, so let me give you a, the briefest of rundowns. Tetrodotoxin acts on something called your sodium channels. What? what? <laughs> that was cool of us. We didn't plan that. <laughs> It's, it's less cool now that you've said it, though. <laughs> Again, if you want a primer on sodium channels, I really feel like I did a great job explaining them because <laughs> I got real stoked on them in the last episode. And you, you explained it really well. Thank you. Basically, for those of you who are like, stop talking about it, I'm not going to go listen to that episode. Or like, I listened to it and I don't remember a thing because you did a crappy job of explaining it. Sodium channels are these channels that are on your nerve cells and your muscle cells. And you need to have them open and close at certain times to have nervous system impulses actually transmit to your muscle cells to cause things like muscle contraction. So if you want to lift your arm or move your finger or talk with your mouth, you need these sodium channels to be working. That's the briefest of rundowns I can give. Love so it. tetrodotoxin is a compound which binds directly to these sodium channels and blocks them. That sounds pretty bad. It's not great. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> it's not great. It blocks them. And what that means is that sodium can no longer get in. If sodium can't get in, you're nerve impulses are not traveling, your muscles are not contracting, you're paralyzed. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. And the thing that makes this different than aconite, which is the compound in Wolfsbane that we talked about in the crossover with Matt, is that it's way, way more gnarly, way more potent. What does that mean? Let me tell you. Mm -hmm. I wrote some numbers down. Oh, good. Because I have fun with this. <laughs> if you could think of a compound that's really, really poisonous, that could kill you really easily, don't guess because you might guess wrong. I'm going to tell you it's cyanide. <laughs> <laughs> Would you have guessed that? Whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So cyanide. You know all the answers <laughs> all the time. Cyanide. Like you read my mind. Get out of my head. <laughs> So cyanide is a compound that everyone knows. Like if you hear the word cyanide, even if you have no idea how it works or what it does, you know, like don't like drink that. It's going to kill you really quickly. Apple seeds. Exactly. So if I wanted to kill myself, no, if you wanted to kill me with cyanide, mm. you would need at least 546 milligrams of cyanide. What does that look like? Well, great question. A teaspoon of salt mm -hmm. is five-ish grams. So that's like 5,000 milligrams. So it's a tiny amount. Okay. So it's like a little Like um, a tenth. Dash. Yes. It's a dash of cyanide. That's all you would need to kill Not me. Not even a sprinkle. Less no. than a sprinkle. Less than a sprink. Okay. Okay. If you wanted to kill me with tetrodotoxin, mm -hmm. 22 oh milligrams. God. How would you even measure that out? I don't. I'd really tried hard to think of a way to like quantify this for to people. To kill you. To kill me with tetrodotoxin, 22 grams. Wait, wait, wait. Grams or milligrams? Sorry. Milligrams. Okay. Whoa, bro. <laughs> I was like, Great. that's a lot of teaspoons. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's very few <laughs> teaspoons. <laughs> yeah, right? So, and the reason is because unlike aconite or... Other There's a, actually a ridiculous amount of toxins. And Shane, I don't know if you're going to touch on this at all. I have a feeling you are. How many different organisms produce compounds which bind to sodium channels? It's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. Yeah. Um, and it's a very diverse set of creatures. Yeah. Which is so interesting. It's fascinating. Because the thing is, we all have sodium channels. Like, uh, like I said in the Monkshood episode... Insects have sodium channels, right. right? So it's this very universal thing that if you can attack that sodium channel, you can attack absolutely anything. So, but tetrodotoxin is 
so good at binding to these sodium channels that we actually classify sodium channels. There's a lot of different types, like sort of subsets of sodium channels that work better. Like these ones are on your muscles and these ones are on your nerves. But there's kind of two broad categories. One, tetrodotoxin sensitive. One, tetrodotoxin resistant. That's mm-hmm. how we classify sodium channels Wow. because wow. that's how strongly tetrodotoxin binds. So we basically... Like all of these different types of sodium channels, we divide them into can tetrodotoxin bind or can it not? Hmm. Right? Isn't that cool? That's amazing. Yeah, it's super cool. (laughs) (laughs) So I know you really want to know what happens to you if you take a bite of a puffer fish just like out of the ocean. Just like the liver. Give me the the liver. liver. Here we go. If you ingest this, generally within a half an hour, often less... The first symptom that you'll have is paresthesia, which is a fancy, silly medical word for your lips start tingling Mm. and they get a little numb and maybe they feel burny and like just like something's not right in your lips. And then that might start to spread and then you might start salivating a lot and then you might start sweating uh-uh. And then you'll get a headache because you're like, what's going on to me? And then you'll feel really weak. Oh, my God. It's like a Subway And then you'll get experience. tired. <laughs> subway sandwiches? Yes. Not endorsed, guys. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, because I've gotten food poisoning a number of times from yes. Subway sandwiches. Okay. And so far, that's what it sounds like. Okay. Well, and then <clears throat> you'll start to get a tremor <clears throat> and then paralysis. That's so no good. No good. And the thing that gets really dangerous and why this ends up often causing death is if you have paralysis of the muscles that you use for breathing, so your diaphragm and your intercostal muscles of your ribs, if those muscles become paralyzed, you cannot breathe. See our polio episode for more on that. Question. Mm-hmm. So it starts in your lips? Or that's just the first symptom it's or often, sign that you yeah, have? Yeah, it's often the first symptom. And that's if we're talking about someone who's eaten fugu or a puffer fish. And that is often the first symptom. And it's because that's sort of the first place where you're going to encounter tetrodotoxin. Improperly prepared fugu. Yes, improperly prepared fugu. Okay. Right. So like you caught a puffer fish and you took a bite out of it okay. like an apple. Right. Then the first place that you'll start to notice symptoms is in your mouth. But then quickly you'll also get gastrointestinal symptoms, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. But again, what ends up killing people is respiratory distress. Right. So you're not able to breathe because all of the muscles of your respiratory tract have failed and they're paralyzed. And then you die. That sounds like a really horrible way to go. It's not a great, I wouldn't recommend it. Mm-mm. And it happens insanely quickly. And part of that's because it's this toxin, right? It's already, it's there. It's preformed. You just eat it or whatever. But you don't have to just eat it, right? What's the preparation that's most commonly associated with zombies? Powder. Powder. I was about to ask you that. Okay. <laughs> Beat you to it. <laughs> so most people come into contact with tetrodotoxin by eating it. Mm -hmm. Right. That's like the most common. Mm -hmm. But because we're not talking about a bacteria or a virus like we normally are, we're Mm -hmm. talking about a compound that it's actually produced by bacteria. It's a toxin because it's already something that's formed. You can take a puffer fish, take its liver, dry it out, grind it up into powder, blow it into someone's face and absolutely expose them to the toxin in that way. So it's not necessary that it's ingested. So is it is it just contact with like like mucous membranes exactly. like your eyes and yes. nose and mouth? Yes. Okay. And gr- I'm so glad you brought that up, Shane, because this is a toxin that is way more deadly for example, if it's injected. So most of the studies on this are done in mice. So they'll inject mice with the tetrodotoxin. It's far more dangerous if you inject a mouse versus if you let a mouse just nibble on a puffer fish. Mm-hmm. Okay. Same thing. I would assume I couldn't find evidence of this, but I think that's because they don't often just like blow tetrodotoxin to mouse faces. <laughs> But you could, one could assume that most of the ways that people 
quote unquote detoxify things, which the way that you do that is with your liver. So if you eat something, Mm -hmm. then your gastrointestinal tract absorbs it and it has to go through your liver, which takes care of a lot of the problem. Okay. If you inject it straight into your bloodstream or you breathe it straight into your nose, which basically goes straight into your blood through your mucous membranes, you don't have that liver detoxification happening. So it's actually a lot more potent. So it's a lot more dangerous. To to inhale is a lot more Yeah. Well, okay. okay. I couldn't find like specific evidence of that because again, I couldn't find studies where they blew tetrodotoxin on mice. But what I, based on what I know Uh about how things work, for example, if you take drugs sublingually or by an inhaler, sublingually sublingually is under the tongue rather than swallowing it down. Um, it's more rapidly gets into your bloodstream than if you eat something and it has to go through your GI tract. Yeah. Can, can I just say, like, blowing tetrodotoxin into the face of a mouse is, like, the most depressing lab <laughs> job I have ever heard of in also, my entire life. Also, can you imagine if you sneeze and inhale, Ooh. like... <laughs> oh, my goodness. If, if there's a hell, that's pretty much the quickest way to get oh there. Oh, my God. Is there, except a job, like, blowing tetrodotoxin in the face of, of lab mice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But so, really, what the, the question that we have to answer, then, is... What does that have to do with zombies, right? Nothing that I said was like, and then you go, you bite people or or even like you become controlled by these powers, right? You get paralyzed and then you die because you can't breathe. Like that's that's what happens. Right. So why, how could this have become a thing that people associate with zombieism? And I'm really glad that you mentioned how zombies in this non-George Romero idea, it, it's not like wanting your flesh and blood it's being under someone else's power it's also being dead and coming back to life mm-hmm. now that tetrodotoxin can do kind of hmm. so i got <laughs> thrilled when i learned about this so one of the weird things about tetrodotoxin from what i've read is that when all of this is happening to you you remain conscious. Oh, doesn't that sound awful? God, which explains a lot, but keep going. Yes. <laughs> so you are aware of what's happening to you, mm-hmm. but it can have such a drastic effect because, again, these sodium channels are everywhere. It can have such a drastic effect on your respiratory rate and your heart rate that you seem like you're dead. So you can appear for all intents and purposes essentially dead if you've been dosed with the right amount of tetrodotoxin where it's not completely paralyzing you, right? Like your brainstem is still working. There's enough function in your diaphragm that your unconscious breathing is still breathing and your heart is beating just enough to keep you alive, but maybe not enough to show a pulse, which can happen. Wow. Yeah. And so people can then pronounce you dead and your family can think you're dead because you, you know, you started vomiting and diarrheaing and then you kind of went limp and paralytic and now you're not moving. It doesn't seem like you're breathing. You must be dead. How long? Great question. This can last. So symptoms tend to set in very quickly, like within 10 to 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. It can it can take hours also. So if you haven't ingested a lot and... um you know, whatever. It can take a longer time if you ingest it versus inject it, etc. Uh, but when people do recover over a, a period of many hours, maybe 24 hours or more, they recover completely if you live. If you survive, you recover completely. There's no neurological deficit. So once this tetrodotoxin sort of just makes its way out of your system, there's no residual effects of it. So it's like the O-Town song, all or nothing at all. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, sure. Yeah, just saying that. So that's what – so even – that's – it's interesting that there, like, because I would think that there would be at least some effects of, of like hypoxia, you know, having like such a, you know, having your, your tissues or brain being deprived of oxygen if you're not breathing very, 
very deeply or very often yeah. and if your heart's not pumping very often yeah i'd imagine there'd be at least some effects from 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 just like hypoxia not getting enough oxygen yeah but it seems like you either die or you recover completely <laughs> that's bizarre it's super bizarre i will say that if your respiratory muscles are affected it's not a good sign you're you're probably pretty much going to die almost everyone who if it if the paralysis spreads all the way to your diaphragm. You're you're probably going to die. So here's the thing. This is it's a gray area. It's not. I wouldn't say I buy it a hundred percent that like you could pronounce somebody dead because they dosed them with tetrodotoxin. But it's been used a, a ton in like popular culture as I'm gonna fake someone's death. You know, like that happens all the time. They do it with tetrodotoxin often in movies. Yeah, I do feel like that's a very common trope. And I could also see, you know, back in, you know, the early, like late 1800s, early 1900s, or even earlier than that, I could certainly imagine a doctor being like, oh, well, he, he seems dead. Threw up and pooed himself and he's not right. moving. And I don't want to touch him because he threw up and pooed right. himself. Right. So just call him dead and, it's and like leave it at that. It's like we didn't have they... EKGs. We didn't have brain scanners. We didn't have like you can very easily survive if you're breathing. Like there's a lot of different breath types that are really not good but will get your body enough oxygen and release enough carbon dioxide but might seem like you're not breathing because you're breathing so infrequently. But if your heart is still pounding, however weak it might be, then the blood is still flowing, then things are still getting oxygen. That I agree. If you are in the 1700s and you're like, you touch them and you're like, oh, they're kind of cold, they must be dead, you know? Mm -hmm. And the stethoscope isn't invented. Oh, I don't know. Don't ask me that. But I guess also the trade off is that. Is that, you know, if you're not, if you're like completely still and comatose, you actually, you don't need as much oxygen exactly. as you would if you were like up and exactly. moving around. So you have this lower metabolic rate as well. So you're, you're using less oxygen, so you don't need as much. Boom. So zombies. <laughs> Biology. So, zombies. Boom. But is it boom or is it mm, just like Yeah, a- it is. That's the thing. Because it's like, okay, that's, it says it's an Almost maybe I could kind of buy an explanation for how someone could be appearing dead and then come back to life. Beyond that, nothing. Like there's no like, and then you will succumb to my will. Or on the other end, then you will eat flesh of humans. You know, there's none of that. So, But the other thing is, is it viable? Can you reliably make a zombie powder. No, I don't even fully buy that you could make a powder period that you could be sure would just kind of paralyze someone to the point that you could convince someone else that they're dead, but then make sure that they recover afterwards. Nah, dude. Yeah. I don't buy it in the slightest. Like you could, if you worked really hard, probably convince people that you faked your death by using this. Maybe. I don't know. So I was going to ask, um, so when when a person does recover, like what has happened, like how does the tetrodotoxin unbind from That's the actually a good channel? question. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess it just eventually something will come by and be able to degrade it. But I don't have a full oh, okay. answer to that because it, from what I can understand, it's not like a reversible uh binding right like it binds and then it's bound so it's either just like your body has to make some new sodium channels maybe and maybe your body can make enough to compensate or eventually like no nothing in your body is going to last forever right so eventually like that sodium channel will be recycled or something some macrophage will come by and like snag up that tetrodotoxin or whatever i don't actually know the mechanism of it i'm just making things up right now but Generating hypotheses. There we go. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) But that is, it brings up a good point in that we don't have any treatment for it. So the, the, the only thing you can really do is if you, if you know that someone ate a puffer fish and they shouldn't have, you can like give them activated charcoal or do a gastric lavage, like make them barf it all up. Um, and that can help somewhat. That is a very fancy word for barf inducing gastric lavage. (laughs) But there aren't any treatments, so... (laughs) 
people have people have tried different things. Um, I don't want to take too much time, so I don't want to get into like the various specific things that people have tried. They don't work all that well. But here's my question. Hmm. Clearly, this mechanism of action of involving sodium channels, it's not something new, right? Pufferfish didn't invent this by any means. We've already talked about it with Wolfsbane. We'll probably talk about it in the future with something else that Mm -hmm. binds to the same channels. But the thing about tetrodotoxin that makes it so forking terrifying Mm -hmm. is that it's so potent. It's so potent that we named the channels after it. And the tiniest amount, 22 micrograms, can kill me, a full-grown human, right? 22 milligrams, sorry. Get all those units mixed up. So my question, and probably everyone's question at this point, and Shane, why we brought you here, is why on earth would something as adorable as a puffer fish need to make such a potent toxin? Do they just want to kill us? Do puffer fish hate us? What's Why? Tell me why please. That is a phenomenal question. So pufferfish, they did not you know, they weren't the first to invent tetrodotoxin, but tetrodotoxin is actually named after them. Well, kind of. Tetrodotoxin is actually named after an order of bony fish called tetraodontiformes, uh, which includes uh, the puffer fish, but also porcupine fish and, you know, the big floppy ocean sunfish. You know, they're like huge and kind of flat and really goofy looking and also uh, trigger fish. So altogether, it's about Almost 350 species in the order, but not all of these species uh, have tetrodotoxin. You know, so it was named in uh, 1910, actually, as the principal toxin in pufferfish, and obviously the principal component of, of fugu, as we were, as you were saying before. You know, since then, it's been subsequently uh, described in a really wide array of organisms across the tree of life, uh, sort of both marine and and terrestrial organisms. Uh, so several, obviously several gen- genera, which is the plural of genus, several genera of, of uh, pufferfish uh, have it, uh, specifically in like liver and gonads. Uh, the marine goby, which is another uh, bony fish, has tetrodotoxin in its skin and muscles. And then even there are several invertebrates, marine invertebrates that also have it. So there are several species of marine flatworms. There is uh, trumpet shellfish, which is a different invertebrate that has it in a digestive gland. Uh, horseshoe crabs apparently have them in their eggs. Uh, some starfish species. I should say one of the, I think, most interesting is actually the blue-ringed <sighs> octopus that actually has it in its salivary glands, and it uses it as I, you know, as it's co-opted as a as a <gasps> venom in in that species. So that's that's really what? interesting. The coolest love blue-ringed octopus. They're like, take this. They're so small. And they're like, you want to fight with me? And then they bite you and then you die. Oh, my God. I love them. <laughs> That's the first it's the first time I've ever heard. It bites you and it dies. Oh, my God. I love them. <laughs> you don't hear that very often except on this yes. podcast. <laughs> I have a quick question, Shane. So okay. you mentioned that the organ of a lot of, of where this tetrodotoxin is stored for a lot of these animals why the liver, the gonads, the intestinal whatever system? Why why there? So that is a great question. And quite frankly, I don't think we know. Um, there's So in doing research for this, I realized that there's, there's a ton that we don't know about <laughs> tetrodotoxin yeah, in terms of how it contributes to, to biodiversity and how the vast array of organisms that use it, how they actually go about using it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, it's it's weird. It is very weird because, I mean, essentially, like you're talking about chemical warfare, essentially, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you're taking this super, super toxic substance and integrating it into your body in in some form or fashion and then using that as as a defense. Yeah. 
So not only does it occur in marine organisms, but they're also terrestrial species, you know, species that live on land that use it. And this is the amphibians. Uh, so, you know, there are tree frog species uh, in the genus Atalopus that use uh, tetrodotoxin. And then it's been most commonly studied in, in newts. So newts, uh, what are called rough-skinned newts, they're in the genus Tarika. Uh, so they have really large volumes of tetrodotoxin uh, in their skin. And there are wow. actually also five different genera that of salamander that, that have tetrodotoxin. What? This is – why? Yeah. Just well, tell us why, Shane. Why? We need to know. What's the deal here, bro? <laughs> okay. Well, so if I can, before I get to the why – the question is how. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. Good question. Right. Good first step. Is that is that okay? Can yeah. we get to the how before we <laughs> get to the why? Sure. We accept. Okay. So just to give you give you sort of the scale of this, we're talking about hundreds of millions of years of diversity of life, right? So if we're talking about across the tree of life between, you know, worms and, and you know other invertebrates and terrestrial organisms, terrestrial vertebrates and fish. We're talking about hundreds of millions of years of diversity. And you get these species popping up across the tree of life that all are using this chemical warfare, like co-opting tetrodotoxin to use as, as typically as defense, right? So there are actually two major hypotheses about where tetrodotoxin comes from. So one is an endogenous origin, right? So something that is, you know, genetically coded in an animal to produce tetrodotoxin. Mm. And there is some support for this. Um, and that typically comes from, from the tree frogs. I mentioned the, in that genus Atalopus, where if you take those tree frog species and you bring them into like a controlled environment where you control what you, what you feed them, what they're in contact with, even years after that, they, they can maintain really high levels of toxicity. And even frogs that are hatched in the lab still have amounts, like measurable amounts of tetrodotoxin in their skin, which suggests that they're actually producing it somehow. Whoa. Oh. But what? Yeah, exactly. And I, and again, I don't really think we know how this works yet. Yeah. Uh, which is really surprising, actually. But then the second hypothesis is actually in, exogenous origin so that animals are uptaking tetrodotoxin uh, either through the food chain or through symbioses. And a lot of evidence for this is actually comes from the pufferfish. So people captively breed pufferfish for food and also for the for the pet trade. And pufferfish that are born in captivity are actually not toxic. They don't have any measurable amounts of tetrodotoxin. What? But if you feed them tetrodotoxin, they very quickly become toxic. Oh, wait. So is it possible that there are distinct groups of animals that some can produce, some some it's endogenous and for some it's exogenous? Yes. What? Exactly. Erin's face is so excited right now. She's just like, <laughs> like her, her eyes can't, can't contain it. Oh my God. That's amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, and it's it's this really sort of wild example of this classic question in evolutionary biology of sort of the repeatability, right? If like you know, if you get the same results, i.e., I have tetrodotoxin, don't eat me or I'll mess you up. Do you get there by the same by the same path, right? And it seems like at least in this case, the answer is there are several paths to potentially get there, wow. either through producing it or through uptaking it in the in the environment. Or, you know, which I think is an even cooler potential explanation is through symbioses. Oh you know, a major, a major hypothesis is that a lot of these species that have tetrodotoxin have them because they formed a symbiotic relationship with bacteria that produce the tetrodotoxin. Mm. Uh, so like Vibrio bacteria is most often uh, suggested as the you know, the symbiont in this case, but also Pseudomonas and Actinomycetes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but in either case, right, there remains this sort of really important question about the repeatability of evolution, right? So either you have independent origins of tetrodotoxin production, right, via these endogenous means, or even if you're uptaking it from the environment, you still have to biologically incorporate it into your own body without being affected by it. 
right? So you still have to have some level of resistance. What is this? Is insane. It's not yes. like pufferfish don't have their own sodium channels. Right, they do. Right, like what? Exactly. How? What? You can feed them to trototoxin. And they're like, no worry, bro. My liver will take care of this. Like my, my liver. Exactly. <laughs> I just skipped the other half of the word that wasn't intentional. I mean, it's pretty huge. My live totes got this, bro. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, and this obviously like brings us to your initial question, which is, which is why? Yeah. And you know, as I described, most of these species are incorporating it in in their organs, and it seems that this is mostly associated with defense against predation, right? Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of species that incorporate it in different organs, but a lot also have it in their skin and in their muscle, right? So if you bit them or tried to hold on to them, you know, obviously, if, you know, if you're biting them, you're biting them with your mouth, which leads to, you know, a lot of the issues that you were just talking, yeah. that we were just talking about yeah. when, it, when it comes to, to human infection with tetrodotoxin. So it seems to be associated by and large with defense against predation, mm-hmm. which also sort of brings us to this weird dynamic that comes out of these prey species having tetrodotoxin, which are what we call evolutionary arms races. All right. So if you're a pufferfish or if you're a rough skinned newt swimming around or walking around doing your thing, you don't want to be eaten. That's generally an unpleasant experience that we all try to avoid. But if you're a predator, typically you like to eat things. (laughs) And this like sort of very simple dynamic Two competing factors, you know, lead to evolutionary arms races where things that don't want to get eaten figure out ways to not get eaten, either by running really fast or growing large or growing hard parts that can't be chewed on. But then predators, you know, they find ways to get around that. Mm-hmm. And there's a really interesting case when it comes to tetrodotoxins, uh, particularly in these rough skin newts that I mentioned before. So this species ranges across the West Coast of the United States, all the way from like Southern Canada down through Southern California. And across the range, they vary in their toxicity, right? So some populations are very highly toxic and some are only uh, mildly toxic. And across the, their range, there are also garter snakes, like very common. I'm sure we've all like seen garter snakes outside, um, yeah. sort of racing from place to place. Mm-hmm. And garter snakes, they uh, occur across the same region. And they're the only predator of the newt that is known to be resistant to tetrodotoxin. What? Right. What? So they, I know, right? Right. So these, uh, the snakes, they eat newts regularly, right? And this has led to a matched resistance to tetrodotoxin. And so where the newts are more toxic, the snakes are more resistant oh to tetrodotoxin. Oh my God, I love biology. It's so beautiful. <laughs> I know. And so just to give you an idea, this ranges by three orders of magnitude. Oh, what? So so we're talking about some snakes are 1,000 times more resistant to tetrodotoxin than others. What? That is so cool. I know. Which brings us back to this idea of the repeatability. Because this resistance, it seems to have evolved independently at least twice what? within garter snakes. So separate lineages have come up with this solution to being able to eat these rough skin newts. Are it's, you it's wild. That's it's like different garter snakes. The same. It's like garter snakes. You think like those are the same snake, but there's different populations that have evolved this different times. And clearly, these newts are a really important food. Source. Source. Yeah. I mean, and it must be extremely important, right? Because, you know, this fundamental question, ideal is like, well, how, how do you get this resistance? Well, you know, you said, you know, how tetrodotoxin affects your, your sodium channels, but these snakes actually have mutations in their sodium channels that make tetrodotoxin less efficient at binding to them. So cool. What? I said there was different kinds of sodium channels, man. They're just like, we're going to skip to all the resisting kind and just forget about this. these ones over here. That is so Why don't cool. we all have resistant sodium channels? Because <laughs> we're not okay. all Cause, eating Because our species fish. haven't been. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it does come at a, it does come at a trade-off, right? I mean, as it, you know, obviously, you know, these sodium channels, they provide a really basic biological function, right? And they help us to, you know, to contract our muscles and move around. 
And snakes that have very high tetrodotoxin resistance cannot move as quickly as those that don't. Interesting. Weird. Huh. So there's like a substantial trade-off. Yes, absolutely. But it would be really cool if that was the whole story, right? Mm -hmm. But recently, actually just earlier this year in 2018, there was a study, again, in two species of rough-skinned newts that suggests that They showed that individuals that were more toxic also had fewer parasites (gasps) than less toxic individuals. We just both got so excited. (laughs) I thought you would like that one. (laughs) One more time, just for emphasis, please. Say it again, please. (laughs) So rough skin newts that are more toxic have fewer parasites than their less toxic counterparts. Oh, my God. Yeah, so it seems like they're actually there's the the possibility that not only does it help them in defense against predators, it but it may also help them defend against infections. That's and amazing. Parasites. What kind of so parasites meaning like ectoparasites or are, are we also talking like bacteria, viruses, etc.? Um, so if I remember correctly, they looked mostly at sort of larger parasites. So things like parasitic worms mm. and even they looked at um, fungi as well, mm. like parasitic fungi for, you know, that affect newts. Things like uh, chytrid fungus, for instance. Oh, oh, oh. That's going to probably have to be its whole own episode. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's... We won't dive too deep into that one. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And so this brings me back to... This original question, Aaron Welsh, that, that you posed of like, why, like, why do we care? Like, you know, why do we want to get into like the mechanisms of all this stuff? I mean, obviously hearing these stories, it's, it's actually, it's really cool, you know, just on its own. But there is, I think, some utility in really trying to understand the mechanisms, either, you know, when it comes to zombie powder or when it comes to, you know, these crazy creatures across the tree of life that are using tetrodotoxin, there is some inherent utility there, you know, when it comes to our understanding of basic biology and medicine. So back in, I think it was like 1929, there was this guy, um, uh, August Crow. You know, he has this, what became a pretty famous quote. And he said that for some large number of human related problems, there will be some animal of choice for which that problem can be most conveniently studied, right? And this is, you know, this, this became his principle, Right? And that's based on this sort of fundamental observation that evolution by natural selection has produced a vast array of diversity and form and function. And because of this, some species are really well suited for understanding human-related problems, right? Because they've evolved extreme characteristics that, that mimic human disease states, or they allow us to conduct experiments that would be otherwise impossible. And this gives us fundamental insights into the diseases that plague us and help us to design you know, effective treatments for those diseases. So in the case of tetrodotoxin resistance, right, in these species, understanding how their ion channels allow them to live with tetrodotoxin may provide really valuable insights into many diseases that are thought to result from ion channel dysfunction, right? And this includes you know, things from like color blindness and night blindness to cystic fibrosis to Alzheimer's to Parkinson's to schizophrenia. You know, so they potentially provide some really fundamental insights into understanding how, you know, these really basic aspects of biology can be modified and improved upon. That was so gorgeous. That was so perfectly put. And fascinating. And we were both at the same <laughs> we were time formed hearts heart with our hands, hands and we were putting them towards oh our God. computers. We were like, oh my like, God. Will you guys stop that? <laughs> no, that, but that is, oh, that was just really well said and really yeah. well put. And I think that you made a really good point that it's not just driven by this curiosity, but there is a function and a reason, an application yeah. for doing this type of research and for being even just interested in it and learning about it from a comparative angle or from a historical angle or from a medical angle. Like there's a reason. From all the angles. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. I know, right? Science. (laughs) Dude, that was great. That was a great episode. (laughs) So should we do sources? Probably. Okay. Uh, so I read a few books or sections of books. Um, I would recommend Invisible Powers, which is edited by Claudine, Michelle, and Patrick Belgard-Smith. 
and also Passage of Darkness by Wade Davis. Um, American Zombie Gothic by Kyle William Bishop, which kind of details the transformation of the evolution of the zombie genre in movies. Okay. Kosanba or the Congress of Santa Barbara, um, to which is like a, a place to learn about and to have scholarship on uh, voodoo. Sweet. I don't have... We'll post all of these, Yeah, that's too. the thing. Is mine are always way too long. I have a bunch of articles that were cool, but you can find them on our website, thispodcastwillkillyou.com. We have every single one of our episodes. We have all of our sources listed there. So, mm-hmm. Shane, do you have any things you'd like to shout out besides your brain? Oh, I guess uh, what I will shout out is the last uh, paper I mentioned about uh, poisons and, and parasites in, in newts uh, was published earlier this year in the Journal of Animal Ecology. The, the, the lead author's last name is Johnson. Johnson et al., mm-hmm. 2018. Sweet. That's very cool. Also, Shane, tell us where everyone can find you and stalk you and listen to your podcast. Yeah, so you can uh, find me at S. Campbell Staten on, uh, on Twitter. Uh, you can also uh, hit up at Superbio Podcast to check out new episodes. Shane, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. This was awesome. It was super fun. Ah. I had a great time. Thank you guys so much. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We love you. You're the yes. number one greatest. Thanks to Bloodmobile for providing all of our music. We love you so much. And, yeah. Join us next time. For something else creepy. Mm-hmm. Now, guess what? Wash your zombified hands. Yep. You're filthy, the animals. Don't be nasty. <laughs> <laughs> Over half a million women swear by the original True Body Bra by TrueAndCo.com. The True Body Bra looks amazing when you put it on with soft fabric that smooths you out in all the right places while still giving you the support you need. The best part, it has no wires, so it's super comfortable for all day wear. Try the original True Body Bra from TrueAndCo today with free and easy returns. And save 15% now when you go to TrueAndCo.com slash this podcast and enter the code this podcast. That's T-R-U-E-A-N-D-C-O dot com slash this podcast.